As many of our listeners know, ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is a devastating neurological disease that affects 25,000 Americans and their families. And many people in our FTD community are living with a dual diagnosis of FTD-ALS. We're honored today to be sponsored by Target ALS, a nonprofit organization that is breaking down barriers and revolutionizing ALS research. Target ALS was founded in 2013 by former New York City Deputy Mayor Dan Doktroff, who lost both his father and uncle to ALS. Target ALS's unique collaborative model that involves leaders in academia, research, and industry has led to an area of promising innovative therapeutic approaches in just eight years, including moving six drugs into clinical trials. Please consider making a donation to help continue to bring scientists together like never before to work toward potentially life-saving treatments. Visit TargetALS.org to learn more. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel and I'm Maria and we're the hosts of Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Today's episode is an expert chat that provides a deeper understanding of the connection between FTD and ALS and provides insight into the current state of research. We had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sammy Barmada, who is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Barmada's research is specifically focused on solutions to treat FTD and ALS. Thank you to Dr. Barmada for today's interview and to our sponsor, Target ALS, for providing the perfect expert for this important topic. Today, we have the incredible privilege of having Dr. Barmada on our podcast as an expert. Welcome, Dr. Barmada. Thank you for being with us today. For the invitation. So I know all of our listeners are very excited for this expert chat because FTD in general, many people don't understand what it is or what people are going through. But then for the people who also have the ALS component, I think when you tell someone, oh, my loved one has FTD and ALS, they're like, what What are you talking about? How is that related? So I think a great place to start would be if you could explain kind of how these two diseases are related. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. It's actually this connection is one of the things that drew me to, to working on these conditions because to be honest, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I was in medical school, we learned about ALS and what we were taught was that this is a pure motor disease, right? People get weak and eventually it becomes very hard to breathe and to, and to walk and to move around and to talk. But part of what makes it even more horrible is that, you know, your cognition, your memory, your thinking is fully intact, right? That was right out of the textbook. That's what we were taught. And then 
you know, fast forward to now, and we know that's really not true. And the reason is because ALS is associated with this type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. And, and when you ask just about everybody off the street, what is a dementia? They say it's memory problems, right? And, and most people actually really equate Alzheimer's disease with dementia. But the, the fact of the matter is Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. And yes, memory problems are first and foremost in Alzheimer's, but there are so many things that can happen in a dementia, as we see with, with FTD, where people's personality changes, their behavior changes, maybe they have a hard time talking. It's not because they necessarily forget the words, but the process of putting those words in a sentence. So it turns out that FTD doesn't have the memory problems, but it has everything else. You know, we just didn't recognize it as a dementia. So lucky us, right? Everything yeah. else, but, but the memory. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think it's actually, it comes down to the social construct of dementia. And that's why FTD was not recognized. People just thought that, you know, if you have ALS, you have this horrible condition, you know, you're, you're allowed to act a little differently, but it, it's more than that. So your question is a really good one. So how are they actually related and why are they related? I think probably a good example to explain this, a good analogy is stroke, right? So what is stroke? Stroke can show up in any number of different ways, right? We, we learn about stroke as something, a sudden change in your ability to speak, to move an arm, to move a leg, to see, to hear, balance, right? It can show up in anything. And it, it's all caused by the same thing, which is a block in the blood flow to the brain. But the symptoms, the, the exact nature of the symptoms depend on where in the brain that blockage occurs, right? If it hits the part of the brain that controls vision, you can't see anymore. If it hits part of the brain that controls your right arm, you can't move your right arm. So something similar we think is happening in, in ALS and FTD. Under the hood, right, if, if you look at the cells of the brain, the neurons, they have the same problem. It's, it's a, a, an accumulation of a protein that we all have. It builds up in those cells, and we think that's related to why those cells die. And that protein, it's, it's called uh, TDP43. It's a, it's a great name, very confusing. But anyway, when that protein builds up in the brain cells that control movement, they're called motor neurons, what shows up on the outside clinically is ALS, right? People get weak and those muscles shrink. And we, as physicians, will diagnose that as ALS. But if that same protein, that same problem occurs in the cells that control your behavior or personality or language, we label that as a different uh, clinical disease, FTD. So I think what this says is that our, our sort of clinical appreciation is faulty, right? We can only diagnose what we see based on people's symptoms, but we can't see what's going on on the inside. That's what we really need is some way of seeing what is happening on the inside. It's called a biomarker. You know, maybe this happens through MRIs or CAT scans or PET scans. We're really working hard to develop those biomarkers so that we don't have to rely on our clinical diagnosis. What the body shows us, we can actually see that protein building up and say, you know, this is that ALS FTD spectrum. Uh, for you, it looks more like ALS or for you, it looks more like FTD. Does that make sense? It, it does. does. I think it's amazing to have an explanation like that because... People because we just... both failed science. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I think ALS, like going back to what you're saying, FTD, nobody knows what FTD is. You know, m most people don't know. We're trying to change that. But at least up here in Boston, where I am, everybody knows ALS because of the 
uh, ice bucket challenge started by Pete Frades and his family, who's a big Boston hero up here. So I think sometimes we find ourselves in my family, my mom had both FTD and ALS, she had PPA and ALS. We would find ourselves saying, oh, she has ALS because we didn't want to go through the, like people are like, okay, got it. And we didn't want to go through the whole explanation. But I think it's important for us to explain that there are two sides of this disease and help people kind of figure out how they can explain to other people how this occurs. Because I think people just think they're two separate, like what is all this going on? So I really appreciate you going through that. And I know that our listeners will as well. How prevalent is it that people have both FTD and ALS? There's some statistic floating out there that 30% of people with FTD have ALS. But when my dad and I would go to support group, it was hard for us to find other people in a similar boat to us that had the dual diagnosis. So what can you kind of tell us about what we know about how many people have both? Yeah. The answer to that question depends a little bit on uh, how you look (laughs) and uh, how hard you look, actually. So on the ALS side of things, the statistic is that only, you know, 15 to 30% of people will have FTD. But again, if you look harder, if you do something called detailed neuropsychiatric testing, right, where it's like a four-hour battery of tests where you're, you're asking them to do pretty much everything under the sun in terms of testing their cognition, you'll find that about 50% of people show signs of FTD. Even if they don't meet that threshold for a clinical diagnosis of FTD, they're heading in that direction, right? And you can see that on these neuropsychiatric tests. But not a lot of people want to do those tests because um, they're fairly involved. Now, on the other side of things with FTD, the, the number is somewhere between 15 and 30% as well for a clinical diagnosis. But uh, again, it depends on how hard you look because we think with ALS that it can be years or even decades that that problem is going on. The cells of your nervous system that control movement, the motor neurons, they're probably being affected long before you show symptoms, Um, but your body has this really amazing ability to compensate for those problems. So even though you, you say you lose the nerves that go to this muscle, the surrounding nerves that are really healthy, they actually can see that and they pick up the slack. So they sprout and they, they actually innervate the the territory that is um, given up by the cell that died. And that can go on for years. And you as a person may not be able to appreciate it, but with detailed testing, like an electromyography or EMG, or, you know, they call it single fiber EMG or other things, you may be able to pick up on it, but you you know, you don't have many random people getting off the street just to get an EMG, right? There has to be some sort of suspicion firsthand. The other thing that contributes to the low in, in say the support group or other people with FTD, you don't see a lot of people with ALS. It's because the ALS symptoms take precedence, right? So FTD can be sort of subtle. Again, you know, like you said, it's hard. It can be hard to recognize. People are misdiagnosed. People are mistreated. Um, Sometimes people are labeled as just being onerous or schizophrenia or bipolar disease. And, And they get shuttled off into different parts of the healthcare system. But if they have ALS, if you have weakness and muscle wasting, you will end up eventually in an ALS clinic, right? And even if somebody is FTD, the ALS clinics are 
because of support through things like ALS Association and Muscular Dystrophy Association, there are these multidisciplinary clinics where you have a respiratory therapist, a speech therapist, a dietitian, a physical therapist. My mom had all of this. Right. No, <laughs> yes. it's incredible. And, and that we know that that level of care can improve survival, right? And improve quality of life. So they stay in the ALS clinic. There, it's hard to find that degree of care in a, in a cognitive clinic. Right. We are trying, but the resources are not there yet. And, and the clinics that do have that sort of support often have a lot of philanthropy associated with them. So um, I've got Boston, MGH. That's where um, my mom was. Yep. Right. UCSF has a fantastic memory and aging center where FTD is, is one of the focuses. The Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Right. So there, there are these places that stand out because of their attention to, to cognitive disorders and the, and the resources to, to provide that level of care. That's so interesting. And I, this isn't on the sheet, so I'm going to throw you a little curveball. I hope you're ready for it. You said it's not too early there. So <laughs> my dad was diagnosed pretty early in his disease with just behavioral variant FTD. But as his disease progressed, you know, he started not to be able to walk as well. He got the shakes, all the things that kind of pointed to, is there a way to determine like, oh, ALS has, you know, kind of peaked through or mm -hmm. do they happen at the same time? And one is just more prevalent than the other. Does that question make sense? It, it I, does. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a really important question that we are trying to figure out. So as, as you likely know, sometimes this condition runs in families, right? And there are sometimes mutations that we can pinpoint and, and say this, this mutation causes both ALS and FTD, right? And the, the most common one has another really catchy name called the C9 or F72 mutation. And that one we know a lot about because it's very common, at least in Europe, and North America. So in families that have the C9 or F72 mutation, people in that family have the same mutation. One person may have ALS, one person may have FTD, another person may have both ALS and FTD. Somebody, it may occur early, somebody may occur late. Why? Why is this? It's the same mutation, right? We don't know. <laughs> the the, the hand-wavy answer is that it has something to do with genetic variation, right? Each of us are a little bit different. We all have small variations in our genetic code. And most likely what happens is that's like rolling the dice, right? You get what you get when you're born, but then there's this really complicated interaction with the environment. So you may have inherited a gene that makes you slightly more likely to be susceptible to some, you know, BPAA or something in the water that we're not even thinking about, right? As opposed to your brother or sister who, who didn't get that gene, um, but they may be susceptible to something else, right? And so we just, we don't know enough about all the genetic background and how it interacts with our day-to-day -day exposures. There's, so, there's so just hide in a hole, just bury ourselves somewhere. Or, or you know, you could act like a mouse and crawl in a, a little wheel. In, in a cage <laughs> Perfect. Day, right? I have my future <laughs> planned out. Great. <laughs> Yeah, oh no, goodness. so nobody, we're not going to do that because we're people right. and it, it's really hard to study in a controlled okay. fashion. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are at with research? The most exciting thing in research in FTD, which is partially driven by technology, is the explosion in genetics, right? And some of this is, is because of 
the ability to process information much more efficiently, right? So if you think about the Human Genome Project, I don't know if many people remember this, but in the in the 90s, right, there were billions of dollars spent, you know, to get all the DNA sequence from one person, J. Craig Venter. And it took like, I don't even remember how long, like 10 years and billions of dollars to sequence his DNA. Now we can sequence your DNA like overnight and it take, it's less than $1,000, right? What we can do now compared to say 20 years ago is absolutely incredible. And so people have, have really taken that to the next level. And we know a lot more about what causes these diseases at the level of DNA. And so we mentioned C9 or F72. For FTD, there are really three big um, genes that we think about. C9 or F72, something called tau and something called progranulin. And, and that's really important because as opposed to other conditions like AD, we think that about four out of 10 people do have a, a genetic mutation that we can put our finger on. And why is that important? Well, it, it's something that we can go after. It's something that we can chase down, we can study, but we can also attempt to treat. In people who don't have an identified mutation, it's hard to figure out where to start. How can we actually you know, develop a therapy if we don't have you know, a red blinking light that we can go after? And we're, we're working on that. We actually think that the genetic disease is a, a good example for what happens um, in people who don't have a mutation, but we, we will see. So anyway, those three mutations right now, there are therapies being tested directly against those mutations in people right now. And, and personally, I think this is incredibly exciting. At, at no time in the past have we been able to move so quickly from an original finding in the DNA to a treatment in people. And there, there are some developments that have made this possible, right? Um, something called an antisense oligonucleotide, which is a lot of words. We call it ASO. And these ASOs allow you to, to really go after specific genes. Probably the best example is a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. I don't know if many people have heard about it. It's a disease in kids. It's one of the most common reasons that kids get weak, actually, and, and they may not have the strength to get up and walk or, or even breathe. Um, and in North America, it's amazingly common. So... Uh -huh. Common enough that in California, they would, you know, every baby would be tested for it. And up until a few years ago, there's very little that we could do. It's just supportive care for kids with SMA. But it's been a long time in development. But just a few years ago, there was a, a, a treatment release. It's an ASO. It's called Nusinersen. But what it does is go after the mutation in SMA. And now kids are not just, you know, they've stop getting weaker, they actually get stronger. And some of those kids who would have passed away are now almost meeting their milestones, right? They're, you know, starting to crawl or starting to walk. And it's phenomenal. I mean, I've been in conferences where all these neurologists, we're, we're used to diagnosing diseases and saying, I'm sorry, there's, you know, there's very little that yeah. um, we can offer you in, in terms of a direct treatment. Now, you know, we can actually impact the lives of these people and, and keep them from dying and actually help them get better. It's hard to describe how much of a difference this has made. And so that, that same technology is now being applied to conditions like FTD and ALS. It's not perfect because you can't give it in the blood. You can't take a pill. It has to be delivered to the fluid that surrounds your brain and spinal cord. So that usually it's done through a spinal tap. It doesn't have to be given every day. It's, you know, every few months. 
Um, we still don't know if it's going to work quite as well for these conditions as it did for spinal muscular atrophy, uh, but there is a lot of hope. The other angle that is moving very quickly is sort of the, the progranulin replacement um, strategy. So of the three big mutations that I mentioned that are responsible for FTD in families, one of them affects a gene called progranulin. And the reason why that's important is because it's sort of a simple, if you have a simple, if you have a mutation, then you, you have less progranulin. And so the sort of scientists who are looking at this, see this as a relatively straightforward problem, because in theory, all we need to do is put that progranulin back. And so some of the um, fastest moving and enrolling trials right now are for progranulin replacement strategies, um, because it, it, in terms of our understanding of the disease, it's something where uh, the solution should be fairly straightforward. You know, should, could, would, you know, I always know if that's the case, but Elector has a, uh, a therapy, for instance, that is going in the, in the clinical trials, and that's meant to, to increase the, the amount of progranulin that's there. So hopefully, you know, for that subgroup of people that have progranulin mutations, that, that may be one of the first places where we'll, we'll see um, some clinical benefit. Wow. I think that's the first time we've ever heard like actually something. Don't you think? Maria? Right. Well, Scientists th- and doctors are like, we're trying, but that, right. you know, and that's why I think it's really an exciting time to, to be where we are. Right. It's not, it's, you know, I want to qualify that because it's never exciting to hear news that you, you have right. a condition. And as of right now, there's still, you know, we, as physicians, we can't prescribe anything, right. We can say, there may be some exciting trials that if you're able to participate in, I would recommend it and point them out, but we still can't offer that, but it, it's changing quickly. You're amazing. This is all incredible information. And I also think it gives a lot of hope to our listeners that a doctor has so much enthusiasm and passion for helping us seek answers and a cure. So I thank you so much for that. What can we do as you know, caregivers or people on the other side of the journey, or perhaps people that know they have a familial connection to FTD, what can we do to support research? Well, I mean, there's, I I think you are are doing a phenomenal job with activities like this, right? So just trying to raise awareness and, and let people know that FTD exists, and uh, raise awareness among physicians as well as uh, everybody else. You know, the first step is is recognition that there is FTD and and that there is benefit to seeing a provider if just to to get an answer. But also, there's a lot of things that we can do even if there isn't a directed treatment in terms of avoiding unnecessary treatment that may make things worse. But also helping to gain some sort of realization of expectations. How will things change in the future? Support groups, finding people to talk to. There's an amazing registry. Everybody, I I would strongly encourage everybody with FTD to um, sign up for that registry. And and then there are sort of more defined opportunities, uh, one of which is the largest trial or collection of investigators working on FTD in, in North America. It's called All FTD. Is actually a combination of two very large studies that said, hey, you know, we're working on sort of two sides of the same coin. Let's let's join forces. And my personal opinion is that everybody with FTD should at least be considered for taking part in this study. If there 
is a mutation if, if FTD runs in the family. If you don't have the disease, if you've been tested and don't have it or haven't been tested, you should still be part of the study. So all family members can also take part in FTD, and that's a very important component of the study itself. All FTD is, is really amazing because one, it, it will help us be able to recognize this condition with more certainty in the future, right? So remove all this sort of you know, maybe misdiagnosis or going to the wrong place or delay in diagnosis. And then two, it's part of what I, I call clinical trial readiness. So say that tomorrow we had this amazing therapy that came out for FTD. Who are we going to use it in? How do we identify those people? And how are we going to measure their response to this treatment? That's what the registry and what all FTD is doing, right? So they are getting information on everybody who has an FT, has FTD and, and trying to figure out, you know, how best to categorize them so that when that treatment comes out, we can give it to the people who are likely to respond the best. Right. Getting ready for that day when that treatment comes out. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Have you ever stopped to think about how nutrition plays a big role in the health of your brain? Most of us don't consume enough of the nutrients that are important for lifelong brain health. This is why we love NeuroReserve's daily supplement, Relevate. Relevate makes it easy to fill in the gaps in our diet every day. Modeled after the Mediterranean and Mind diets, every serving of Relevate contains a comprehensive, cost-effective bundle of 17 brain-healthy nutrients for less than buying a cup of coffee each day. We especially love NeuroReserve because it was founded by our friend, Ed Park, who dedicated his life to improving brain health after losing his father to Parkinson's and dementia. Ed has given our listeners a special code for 15% off all orders of Relevate, so head over to neuroreserve.com and learn more about their evidence-backed product, Relevate. Don't forget to use code REMEMBERME at checkout for 15% off, including subscriptions. That's neuroreserve.com, code REMEMBERME. I actually do have a, an off-the-cuff question. Oh, you do? Yeah, I just, ready. Got, it just came to me. <laughs> um, when my dad passed away, I made the decision to donate his brain. Is that something that the scientists and the lab workers appreciate? Like, is that more beneficial or equally beneficial than, you know, someone like me who can give you my blood? And, you know, what yeah. what do you see with that? Full disclosure, I'm I'm the director of the brain bank. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I, I know your answer. Got it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right off the cuff. So yes, it it is incredibly valuable. And and you know one big reason why I can say that is the fact that we still cannot diagnose with complete uh, confidence FTD in somebody that we see in the clinic, right? There are lots of tools at our disposal, but none of them is perfect. And the only way we can be absolutely confident is by looking at the brain itself. And there's still, there, there is so much to learn from that brain tissue, right? I, I mentioned this sort of explosion in genetics, right? We can now do genetic analyses on the brain. And there are many people who are trying to do just that. In in our group, right, we we think that you know, we may learn something about what causes that disease. One of the first things that we do, 
or try to do is try to look for evidence of that in the brains of people with FTD, because if it's not there, we may not want to study it. Good to know. So it, it is invaluable. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that ALS research has like a halo effect on FTD research, or is it all kind of really being done together? Like how, how do they impact one another? Halo, halo effect. Oh, halo effect is like, yeah, yeah. um, if one does well, the other one will do well. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of what we learn from ALS can be applied to FTD. Okay. Um, not everything, uh, of course, but there's a lot of it. And I, I also think that it's not limited to ALS. So the, the thing with science is that, you know, like I mentioned with the, the technology boom, the people who were miniaturizing those chips weren't thinking that, man, this will be great for FTD research, right? I think it's it's the ingenuity of the and the creativity of the people doing the science who who look elsewhere and they're like, hey, you know, that CRISPR stuff, we could really apply that to what we're doing, right? And there is some direct knowledge that can be applied from ALS to FTD, but it, it's the indirect stuff that you can argue it, it is just as impactful. I think ALS is, you know, has received more attention, like we said, maybe because of the ice bucket. Part of it is also, in my mind, because FTD is confusing. So, you know, I I teach medical residents and and students and and fellows and, you know, it's alphabet soup out there, right? It's FTD. No, it's PPA. No, it's BVFTD. It's SVPPA. It's LVPPA. Why is it PPA? Why is it FTD? Yeah. And so like, sometimes it gets really nuts. We interviewed someone like a few weeks ago whose mother was diagnosed in 1995 and she continuously um, referred to the disease as PICS. PICS. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so we're like, well, here's another one in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Have people calling, uh, you know, I hear FTDP 17 still. Um, oh, which is, I've never heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I learned in medical school. It's frontotemporal dementia with Parkinson, Parkinsonism linked to chromosome 17, wow. which is um, progranulin and tau mutations. Wow. Well, I think that's why we've been able to have so many different stories and our podcast is still very engaging because if you see one person with FTD, you've seen one person with FTD. I mean, it just the initial presentation and all the different stories we hear are there's definitely common threads throughout, but, you know, Rachel's experience with her dad is completely different time-wise, initial presentation-wise, all of that to my mom. So yeah, I can see why it's very confusing for people because it just presents in so many different ways. You're absolutely right. Every person is their own person. And as a physician, it sometimes that's really hard when people ask how quickly are things going to change and, and what can I expect? To some degree, it's it's hard to answer that question, right? Because each person is so different, we can try to project based on what we've seen before, um, but there's no hard and fast rule. Right. Is there anything that we didn't ask you that like you really want people to know? I, I think people are very often hesitant to participate in research. And, and I've I can see that. I actually, my 
my wife is really great. My, my wife works in the lab with me. Oh my God. Um, I love she's, that. she's like a, a true scientist and I'm, I'm sort of a pseudoscientist, but um, very often physicians are not really good at talking to people and helping people understand things. That's not always the case, of course. I mean, everybody um, has uh, a different way of interacting with people, right. but I think many people are put off from, from participating in research because they don't always know, you know, it's like a, a black box it's, or donation or philanthropy, right? You put all this effort or time or money into something, and then you're not really sure what you get out of it. And especially with research into things like FTD, there may not be an immediate benefit for you to participate in this research. Um, but it's, it's hard to explain just how much of a benefit it is on the flip side for the research. I mean, the, the only way that I feel that we're actually going to make progress is by basing all of our work on the actual disease. I think for too many years, we, we've been focusing on the laboratory, the bench work, the animals like mice. And, you know, frankly, we've gotten really good at curing disease in mice. It's fantastic, but it, it, mice aren't people. Right. And so there have been many uh, false starts that I, I don't need to describe to you where this really promising therapy that uh, has amazing effects in the lab is brought to humans and it fails. And we saw this most recently with Alzheimer's disease. Right. I'm not saying that uh, aducanumab fails, but it, it did not have the big clinical effect that we would all like to see and would have expected to see based on the lab work. So that tells me that we need to be looking at the disease, not the, the animal, uh, but the disease. And, and that disease occurs in people. So we need people to participate in research. I think another like kind of pitch for research, just from our side of things as like caregivers and people living through the experience with our loved ones is this experience makes you feel so helpless. And that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast is we needed to channel our grief and energy into doing something because there mm -hmm. is no cure. And to be a participant in research and, or, you know, to tell your friends to raise awareness, that is one way that you can kind of take control of a situation mm -hmm. that generally we feel very out of control and like we can't make an impact on. So it, it's just kind of a way of like taking the reins a little bit and empowering us in this terrible, you know, situation. What is your favorite part about the research you're doing? Like what excites you about what's going on? Is it that it's, you know, fairly unknown, uncharted territory? Like what, what gets you excited about this profession? Yeah, that's a, it is a, it is a good question. What, what I like about doing this is finding answers. I, I just, it, it really bugs me that, you know, it's been a hundred years or so since this condition has been around, even longer for ALS. And yet when, when you're talking to somebody and they say, well, why, why has this happened? Uh, I, you know, I wish I could tell you, right? And, and I really do want to be able to say why, um, but I, I don't have that answer. I also think it's just amazing. Uh, it, it's really incredible how things fit together. And, and I feel like if, if we just knew a little bit more, um, we, we could really start to make a difference. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
You can learn more about Remember Me at RememberMeFTD.com or by following us on Instagram at RememberMePodcast. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can learn more information about our sponsors in the show notes and on our Instagram. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. I get to see her